Be forewarned. If you are easily upset or don't have the stomach for controversy, do not listen to this program. This hard-hitting program may shock you. It may offend you. Unlike Rush Limbaugh, Jim Greenfield doesn't keep half his brain tied behind his back to keep it fair. Jim doesn't care if it's fair. And now, the controversial host, Jim Greenfield. This is Jim Greenfield bringing hope to the desperate, meaningless lives of millions of listeners here on the Jim Greenfield Show. Yeah, I was about to give out the phone number. We don't have a phone number. Do you want, do you want a phone number? We've got to start getting some calls in, right? Yeah. We're gonna have we're gonna start taking callers, and Stuart will during the break, will give out the information what you how to go about calling in to the Jim Greenfield show starring Jim Greenfield. Quote of the day: We learn from history that we do not learn from history. George Friedrich Wil, Wilhelm Hegel. Who? G- George Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel. Where's your microphone? Oh, Go ahead. Is he part of the uh, the Hegel family that invented that thing on the end of the shoe that allows it to not fall off the heel? I, you know, I never get your jokes. Is that who he is? This is <laughs> that's my producer, Stuart Rice. I, I the reason I hired him as a producer was I, I interviewed like twenty people and Supposedly, he was the funniest. Right. Yeah, of, of all the people I interviewed, he was the funniest. That's not the joke. You're supposed to say, who's Fred- George Friedrich H- Wilhelm Hegel? Let's try this again. Okay. Who, who is that? Hegel? Yeah. He's the guy who said we learn from history that we do not learn from history. Actually, actually, you know, that worked pretty well in, right. on previous episodes because I didn't know who the guy was either. Right. But I actually know who Hegel is. He's the guy that invented when you go to the store trying to get the person to drop their price. Hagling. No, it's Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. Oh, no, you see, you're, you're just displaying your lack of, of classical education. It's true. Hegel was the uh, German philosopher, I believe in the 1700s, who came up with the concept of the dialectic. I actually, not to brag, but I actually read Hegel in college. He was... He was he's, Difficult, complex, abstruse. I should have tried reading them in English. You went for the original German? Is that what you want? <laughs> and I don't even speak German. But he, he, he came up with the concept of the dialectic, which is the, the idea that you have some idea becomes predominant in society. And that he called the thesis. And then the thesis breeds its own opposite, which he calls the antithesis. So you have some idea becomes very prominent, and then that generates opposition to that idea, which is the antithesis. So you have the thesis as the, the, the original idea, and you have the antithesis. And the two clash, and they conflict with each other, and out of the two uh, emerges a synthesis, which is what comes from the two clashing ideas. And then over time, the synthesis becomes the new thesis that generates another antithesis. This was called the process of the dialectic. And then Karl Marx took that concept and stood it on its head by creating dialectic materialism, where he said the thesis is capitalism and the antithesis – well, no, the the thesis is – 
he took it as like um, an ec economic forces. Mm -hmm. So it's like the, the, the bourgeois class, capitalist class, and then you have the working class becomes the – well, it started out – let me back up. You, you know, it was, it was 50 years ago. So it's coming back to me That's now. before I was alive. Yeah, well, it starts out, I guess, with the, with the feudal ar aristocratic class, and then the, the capitalist bourgeois class rises up in opposition to that and becomes the antithesis. And then, and then the, the working class, the blue collar, becomes the antithesis to that class, and they clash, and then it merges, and ultimately it ends up in communism. So that's Marx. But, but Hegel had this concept that history is actually progressive and that as it, as it goes forward, it evolves to higher and higher levels, which, of course, we now know is incorrect. Anyway, I, I shouldn't have gotten into all that stuff, but... Um, because nobody cares. And I care. Nobody studies this anymore because they don't get classical education anymore. They're too busy studying hip-hop culture and women's studies so that they don't have time to study Hegel and, well, they get marks. <laughs> they, get, they get plenty of marks, but it's like a bastardized version of Marx. Progressivism, I don't think. They would, I don't think the professors would make want to make the students concentrate that hard to actually have to read Marx himself. Let me start today from the Bureau of Misfeasance, Malfeasance, and Malevolence. This is a small story, but it has the ramifications of it are significant. I heard a report on OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting, because I live in Oregon. Uh, recently about the Portland City Council is trying to implement a bill that would give a grant of $350,000 to nonprofit organizations that fight against hate crimes. Now, everybody is against hate crimes because, you know, this is motherhood and apple pie who would be in favor of hate crimes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So everybody, everybody hates hate crimes. Everybody loves uh, well-intended groups that fight hate crimes. So it's it's motherhood and apple pie. Although motherhood and apple pie aren't really motherhood and apple pie anymore. I think motherhood has been denigrated. It's no longer sacrosanct. But a uh, another. But but this is really just an, another euphonious idea that no one can oppose. And euphonious doesn't mean phony. It means sounds sounds nice, sounds good. But there are a couple, there are a couple of problems with it. First of all, when politicians ha hand out money to nonprofit corporations, how do you think that works in the real world? I mean, the way it sounds is, oh, isn't this wonderful? We're helping this wonderful organization that does wonderful things. It's so beautiful. In the real world, the way it works is that the politicians hand out the money to the nonprofit corporations and the nonprofits return the favor. The, the nonprofit members will then support the politicians who help the nonprofit grow, with, uh, grow larger with ever larger doses of taxpayer money. And this, you know, this works at the federal level. Conservatives, for example, hate Planned Parenthood. Yes. With good reason parenthetically. They hate Planned Parenthood and uh, wanted to fund it, but it hasn't been defunded. Planned Parenthood is still getting, I don't know, like half a billion dollars a year in taxpayer money. So 
they they take the money and they use it to support their their various uh, endeavors but some of it they use to support the politicians who are giving them the money and this works with all the other nonprofits also so my argument is that we should defund we should defund planned parenthood and then defund all other nonprofits oh and churches all, really yeah okay yeah no I, look this is how it works because they also give money to churches, yes, they which do. raises con- constitutional issues, of course. Right. When liberals are in power, they support Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. When conservatives are in power, they give the money to Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, or the late Jerry Falwell and the soon-to-be-late Pat Robertson. That's Joel. Awesome. And they're, you know, they're all crooked. They're all t- they're all getting rich, taking taxpayer money, and they're all part of a cesspool. And this is true with all nonprofits. So I said the federal government, should, the federal government, the local government, city government, they should all stop it. Stop giving the money away like that. And when you're done, get, when you're done defunding the nonprofits, you should defund all the for-profit corporations. And the federal government should defund all sanctuary cities. And then they should defund all other cities. And then they should all defund all states. Block grants. No. Stop. Why, why, is the, why does the federal government give money to states? I don't know. They take the money from the states, then they put some of it in their own pockets, and what's left they give back to the states. Right. So if the states want the money, just lower the federal taxes, and then you to states, if you think you need more money, you can tax your own people more. You yeah. don't need to take it from the federal government. Now, Which, by the way, I agree with you fully. Everything we, you're saying right now. I uh, well, I'll, right. I'll re-examine my analysis here and see where I went wrong. Yeah, obviously. Yes. Yeah. This it's, doesn't seem right. Yeah. Uh, it's just that... That's my feeling about uh, that. That's my feeling. About, I'm getting distracted because the phone is ringing. ringing. Yeah. Where am I hearing the phone ringing from? It's I got it turned off. Well, anyway, that, it may be my computer guy. You know, maybe it's the pizza guy. It might be the pizza. We guy got going, pizza. I can't figure out how to get up the driveway. We've got uh, we've got Domino's pizza on order. Right? They're like 45 minutes late, and I had this great idea. Instead of to compete with Domino's Pizza, pizza? Mm-hmm. Stuart, you want to quit your job and make millions? Yes. We start Dominatrix's Pizza. I, I got that turned volume turned down. No, you don't. Push stop. I turned the volume all the way down. Okay, so Dominatrix's Pizza, you, you, it's, you order the pizza, and it's delivered to your door by a, a tall, attractive woman wearing leathers and high heels and carrying a whip. Oh, yep. Okay. Dominatrix's yeah. pizza. It, I mean, that is a billion-dollar idea. Because she's just showing up in a costume. Yeah, she's just showing up in the costume. Right. But can you imagine the marketing? So where was it? Oh, yeah, defunding. So, um, oh, yeah, the other, the other problem I have with the city of Portland giving money to groups that fight hate crimes, you know, it's not like I'm in favor of hate crimes. I don't I've believe ne- you're in favor of hate I've, crimes. I don't, as far as I know, I've never committed one. I usually commit dispassionate crimes. Okay, the other problem I have with with uh, with with the, the, is the notion of a hate crime. Because if you think about what what is a hate crime, what it's is a, that's a crime you basically because you're angry or hateful. Towards it was a rhetorical a question. Crime. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, what kind of producer you get? You hire a guy, you ask a rhetorical question, he starts answering it. Okay, so like for example. 
you have two situations. One In one situation, a guy hits you over the head with a baseball bat. And under question, it comes out, the reason he was hitting you over the head with a baseball bat is because he hates you. Now, that's still not a hate crime. Even though he's hitting you because he hates you, it has to be that he hates you for a particular reason, and only certain categories of reasons. If, you, if he hates you because you stole his girlfriend, no. That doesn't qualify as a hate crime. If he hates you because you're Hispanic and he's not Hispanic, then it's a hate crime, right? So it, you have to be a member of a particular group to be the victim of a hate crime. Now, if somebody hits you over the head with a baseball bat and the police question, question say, well, well why, why were you hitting him? You say, I, I don't know. You say, well, do you hate him? No, I, I don't have strong feelings about him one way or the other. That's not a hate crime. Now, my feeling is personally, I find it much more disturbing that somebody's hitting me over the head with a baseball bat who doesn't, who doesn't hate me, doesn't dislike me, has no feelings about me. There's something very troubling about that. And so I, I don't see any, re, you know, I don't really particularly feel like that he necessarily should go to prison longer because, because he, he's doing it because he hates me. And, you know, to me, it's like the important thing is that he hit me over the head with a baseball bat and it was like painful. That's the important right. thing. I, Not I, what he, and, and it's a problem. You see, it's a, it's a thought crime. Yes. It's a thought crime. It's like, you know. It's like 1984. George Orwell, 1984. Did any of you people read 1984? If you haven't read it yet, you need to read it. It's like, you know, major important work, and, and you'll never understand anything that's going on unless you read 1984. Uh, and someday I'm going to talk about the fact that we're actually in a situation. We're actually moving into a world now which is worse than 1984 because the technology is even more totalitarian than what George Orwell imagined Absolutely. in 1947. I, I'm going off in six directions at the same time here. The, 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 Highly unusual for yeah, you, by yeah, the way. You're being sarcastic, right? Yes. So the, the point is that hate crime is a thought crime. I, I'm sort of simplistic. You know, I offer simple solutions to complex problems. I feel like just figure out what the crime is, and then the punishment should be according to the crime. Now, if you have a hate crime, they add. You know, like they might add five or ten years to your sentence. So let's say you could murder somebody. Because you hate their their racial or ethnic group or their gender or their or their sexual orientation, so you murder them. So they they give you capital punishment. They execute you plus ten years, which means that they leave your corpse in prison for ten years after they execute you. Right. And that's really bad because you know obviously we want to get buried. Correct, or at so, least moved on because the smell gets real bad. But this idea of thought crime, see, I, I don't think that courts should probe into people's mental state. I, I also don't believe in you know the defense of uh, the the defense that somebody's mentally ill or mentally impaired, and therefore that's a defense. No, you commit the crime. This is the punishment. I don't think courts should get into all that. It's too complex. It's too subtle. It's too hard to to sort it out. Just let everybody know this is the crime, this is the punishment. Here's an interesting thing to add to that is uh, it's a hate crime, right? All right, so you hate the ethnicity, you hate the whatever it is that yeah. you're doing the crime towards. If you get an extra five to ten years, what does your how does your opinion change on that particular subset? Do you all of a sudden because oh. you got an extra five to ten oh, years? Well, you know like, Oh, I love them now. <laughs> well, you like, know how. I don't understand oh, how now think works. about this. Let's suppose, just 
just to make liberals happy. Let's suppose that a white guy commits a hate crime against a black guy. So they put him in prison, and all the black guys in the prison know that this guy committed a racist hate crime against a black guy. So his life is on the line, right? Well, what does he do to protect himself? He joins, he joins the skinheads, the white yes. nation. What, what do they call? What do they yeah, call them? The Aryan nation. The, he joins the Aryan yeah. nation. Yes, I kind of agree with you wholeheartedly on this. And I, you know, this has been a bad day from the beginning. The pizza's not here. Yeah. We had tech problems with the computer. Yeah. And and now you're agreeing with me. Yeah, I know it's really bizarre, but actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it on you. A Just don't bit. call me Ashley. Fair. Shirley. Um, and don't call me Butt either. My kids always call me Butt. Yeah, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, no, you're grounded for a week, and they'll say, but, 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 but. but. All right. Um, okay, so we edit that joke out. <laughs> we can totally edit that joke out. Um, so I think the prison system's terrible. I really do. I think it's horrible because we don't take people in to rehabilitate them. We take them in to punish. I don't think punishment works. I don't think that at any point by punishing somebody that they it, – it's a pretty rare case. It is a outlier that will go into prison and come out and be a productive member of society. That's an outlier. You know, I wish, I wish when I were a kid yeah. you had been there to make this argument to my father. Yeah. Punishment doesn't work. It does. Yeah, I don't I wish you had told him that because it should, could have saved me quite a few spankings. Yeah. Yep. So – I think the last time he spanked me was when I was like 10 because the time after that when he tried to, I ran behind the dining room table mm-hmm. and I was faster. So he couldn't get me All right. and he never spanked me again. All right, because he was the efforts too much. And then when I was 12, I got sent to my room. I'm not sure why he sent me to my room, but he sent me to my room. He was tired of me. And I, no, I was bad. I did something bad. So I snuck out the bedroom window and hitchhiked to the mall to meet my friends. And I came back like six hours later and nobody said a word. And that was it. Yep, that's it. That's I, now, I don't know whether he forgot. <laughs> the balance of power I never found out. Well. I don't know whether really he, nice. he forgot that he had sent me to my room or, or whether he knew. And then he'd gone into my room and I wasn't there. Yeah. And he didn't want to confront the reality that that, that, that implied that – this kid is completely out of control. Yeah. After that, there was no, there were no rules and no discipline, mm-hmm. which explained a lot about the kind of trouble I got into. Sure. But let's let's not talk about me anymore. Let's go on to this from the Bureau of Lower Standards, the Bureau of Lower Standards and Falling Expectations. This is from the Dredge Report. Sounds like my love life. I don't want to hear about your love life because I'm I'm trying to fight against the lower standards. I know, and, I know you. Are. So I'll let you. Uh, from the Dredge Report, this this uh, the headline is part of Senator McCain's brain is to be removed, future in Senate uncertain, and I'm sure you've all heard the news that Senator McCain has brain cancer, right? So uh, this report comes from Phoenix, Arizona. Doctors at the Nays Mayo Clinic in Phoenix announced today that it will be necessary to remove one-third of the brain of Senator John McCain, Republican of Arizona, to save the senator's life from 
glioblastoma, glioblastoma, an aggressive and cancerous brain tumor. Now, Dr. Phil S. Stein, a Harvard-trained neurologist, also a Republican, made the announcement on Saturday at a news conference in the hospital lobby. The portion of the brain to be removed, according to Dr. Stein, this is, a, this is, an, astonishing, this is an astonishing story. I mean, you may be asking yourself, why, why are you reading this story? Listen, listen to this. You're not going to believe what, what is going on here. The portion of the brain to remove, according to Dr. Stein, includes 80% of the cerebrum, the main center for higher intellectual functions. The good news, Dr. Stein said, quote, is that the surgery should not, should not significantly interfere with Senator McCain's capacity to continue to serve in the United States Senate. Close quote. You said it, it will not? He uh-huh. said that the, the removal of a third of his brain, including 80% of his uh, cerebrum, will not uh, interfere with the senator's capacity to continue to serve the United States Senate. Now listen to this. This is, this is the part that's amazing. In response to questions from reporters, Dr. Stein conceded that removal of the lion's share of the cerebrum could produce a reduction in IQ, the intelligence quotient most commonly recognized as the best overall measure of intellectual capacity. However, Dr. Stein said, quote, this loss of brain capacity and intellectual function should not interfere with the senator's most important Senate duties. Senator McCain will retain the capacity for some speech and can be retaught the basic vocabulary necessary to continue in an active life in politics. The senator will be able to repeat words such as America, peace, hope, Voters, etc. What about freedom? Uh, freedom and freedom. Over time, this is again, this is from Dr. Stein, the neurosurgeon. Over time, with help from speech therapists, Senator McCain should be able to master slogans such as hope and change, yes, we can, I love this country, and make America great again. In addition, Dr. Stein said, Senator McCain will be able to push a button so he can continue to vote in the Senate on the important issues that come before that body. Close quote. Now, it, these, these comments from Dr. Stein received some pushback from reporters. Jim Shorts, a UDP correspondent, asked, quote, Come on, doctor. You're asking us to believe that a man with a large chunk of his brain removed, including most of his cerebrum, is capable of performing the duties of a United States senator, one of the highest offices in the land? Well, responded Dr. Stein, I'm the chief of neurology here at the Nays Mayo Clinic, the top cancer institute in the world. I'm quite familiar with the responsibilities of a United States senator. I mean, let's face it, sir. Being a senator isn't brain surgery, is it? You know that Congressman Gabby Gifford served in Congress for more than a year after being shot in the brain. I think that was 2011, right? She served in Congress for more than a year after being shot in the brain. And Susan Collins has been serving in the United States Senate for 20 years, even though she's obviously as dumb as a rock and no longer has Olympia Snow, who retired a few years ago, to tell her what to do anymore. Olympia Snow was the other senator from Maine. And Susan Collins always did whatever Susan, uh, Olympia Snow did. And I wondered when I, I was wondering that myself, you know, when Olympia Snow retires, I said, well, what's Susan Collins going to do now? Well, anyway, um, th- then uh, uh, Dr. S- uh, Stein continued. Then there's Maxine Waters, the congresswoman from California, who was a complete moron, but has served with distinction 
and still manages to be one of the brightest stars showing up regularly on MSNBC. What about Harry Reid? His IQ couldn't, couldn't be much above 75, and yet he managed to rise to the highest level of American politics, serving as the Senate Majority Leader until he accidentally punched himself in the eye and decided to retire. Then there's, there's House Minority Leader Nancy Melosi. During an apparent brain seizure, she repeated the word affordable, affordable, 13 times in describing Obamacare. And by the way, I, I checked the video. It's true. She said affordable, 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 13 times. Anyway, uh, so I'm confident. This is Dr. Stein and he's continuing. So yes, I'm confident that losing one-third of his brain will not be an impediment for Senator McCain continuing to serve in the Senate. Close quote. Now, uh, as you might imagine, despite these uh, reassurances from Dr. Stein, there have been grumblings among Senator McCain's constituents in Arizona, many of whom told Internet pollsters that they feel Arizona should be represented in the Senate by someone with a complete brain. However, a spokesman from Senator McCain's office, senior staffer Ben Dover, said that this is AstroTurf, not a grassroots movement, and accused unnamed adversaries of Senator McCain, notably ambitious politicians in Arizona, eager to replace John McCain in the Senate, of being behind the anti-McCain movement. Quote, Senator McCain has served Arizona for decades with complete dedication, said Mr. Dover, and most Arizonans would rather have Senator McCain continue in office, even if he had no brain at all, than elect one of these assholes who were undermining him. Close quote. In support of Senator McCain, Howie Did It, a spokesman for the NARP, the National Association of Retarded Politicians, said that his group stands behind Senator McCain 100%. Quote, We have already talked to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, and they are prepared to file a lawsuit to protect Senator McCain's right to remain in the Senate. Close quote. Within a minute of this, within minutes of this statement, the ACLU issued a press release that stated, quote, any attempt to remove Senator John McCain from office on the grounds of mental or intellectual impairment would be a clear violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution and of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. Section 1776F of the ADA states in clear and unequivocal language, quote, no more person may be removed from public office due to mental incapacity, lack of intelligence, ignorance, stupidity, brain damage, or other gross dysfunction, unless such dysfunction can be shown by clear and convincing evidence to interfere with such person's ability to carry out his public duties. In other words, ACLU spokesperson An Anonymous said, quote, the brain-damaged community has a right to be represented in Congress just like other minorities. Close quote. Now, in related news, convicted former NFL running back O.J. Simpson told reporters today that after he's released from prison, he intends to move to Arizona and run for Senator McCain's seat in Congress, in the Senate, that is, after he finds the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson. Now, you'll remember... It was O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson, who said, who's the first Jewish guy to get a Heisman Trophy? Fred Goldman. He's got mine. Now, I, my feeling about that 
is that it's almost funny enough. It's it's not almost funny. It is funny enough to almost make up for the double homicide. <laughs> okay, Stuart, you don't need to hold it back. You can let the laughs out now. Yeah, that's good. That's good, good stuff, huh? Good stuff. That's a that's a really important. Report that's from the dredge. Out, yeah, yeah that's from the dredge report, and 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 that will be posted on our facts, our fake fake news dot com website mm-hmm. uh, associated with the taxman cometh yes dot net. Okay, so shall we go, go? We we go on. The pizza ain't coming. Let's keep going, man. Yeah, they lost your order. They, you, they didn't they even call. Yeah, they didn't. The no, computer, guy, computer called. guy called, and the maybe computers we the, maybe. the computers working now. We got the dredge report. Did, did I say what department that came from? I think you did. Yeah, the Bureau of Lower Standards and Falling Expectations. Right. Yeah, we joke. got that. Okay. Which joke was that? Uh, Never mind. Don't make it again. I think we should have a one-time rule for jokes. One time per show. One time per show. Yeah. yeah okay. One time per show. One time per show. Okay. This next item comes to you from the Department of Convoluted Logic and Specious Reasoning. Is it specious or spacious? It's specious. And specious reasoning of the Jim Greenfield Show. Hey, while you're uh, thinking and the phone's ringing, because that's a nice segue, actually, we actually do have a phone number if people want to contact the show. Uh, We have a phone number for them now. Would you like to know what that phone number is? But do they have to call while we're recording? Uh, No, we will. If they want to be on the show, we can set that up. Oh, we'll set it up with it. Okay, yeah, what's the phone number? The phone number is 971-238-9804. I'm sorry, say that part again. 9804. Okay, 971-238-9804. You see, you have to turn it down each time they call. That's annoying. Yeah, that's annoying, isn't it? Yeah, I noticed. You don't return phone calls. 971-238-9804. Once again, that number is 971-238-9804. Act now. Okay. So, from the Department of Convoluted Logic and Specious Reasoning, I wanted to explain why it's so hard for the Republicans to pass a health care bill repealing the abomination that is Obamacare. Yeah. And after Obama, after Obama was elected, th- this became an abomination. Now, the the problem, as as I talked about in a previous show, the 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 Republicans or conservatives, let's say, are in a contradiction. They can't win the argument about letting people die in the streets. They can't win that argument, no. even though I, Jim Greenfield, made it an extremely persuasive and eloquent argument as to why it should be government policy to let people die in the streets. I mean, people die anyway, but that there are better ways to keep people from dying in the street than having the government try to stop it. Okay, that's basically the argument. But which I won't, I won't recapitulate it here, because that would take the whole show. But they, they, but the conservatives can't win that argument because arguments these days are conducted in 30-second sound bites. Correct. If you're lucky, 
a lot of them are conducted in 10 second sound bites so it's very hard to explain bumper in 10 seconds, seconds or get yeah, bumper sticks it's very hard to explain <laughs> in 10 seconds or 30 seconds why we should let people die in the streets so the the conservatives are in a, in a contradiction because if you don't if you don't believe that policy should be to allow people to die in the streets that means you 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 believe that the government should be involved in some way in health care now an example of how this conf, uh, how this contradiction plays out, because basically Republicans and conservatives, I won't say Republicans, let's say conservatives, okay. theoretically believe in free markets. And so they want to believe in a free market in health care. Unfortunately, that ship has sailed. We, we don't have a free market in health care. No. And it's very hard to restore a free market once it's gone. So you've got this contradiction. Republicans want to have a free market as much as possible. So, for example, they want to get rid of the individual mandate. Look, there, there, are, basically, there are basically three possible approaches of, uh, un, as far as public policy to a health care system. You can have a free market. And we haven't really had one in this country, a complete free market here, since 1965. Right. That's when Medicare and Medicaid were created, and the government began to massively intervene in the, the health care market. So you could have a free market, which is like the market for health care would be like the market for groceries. You know, you can go to whatever store you want, buy whatever groceries you want. The grocery stores compete, which benefits consumers because each store wants to have as many products as it can, as high quality as products as it can, and as good a price as they can in order to compete with the other stores. And that's why each, each supermarket carries 50 or 60,000 different types of food, and you can buy whatever you want. Right. That's a free market. We don't have that in healthcare. Now, the other extreme is socialism. And they don't call it socialism because socialism doesn't sound good. People have a negative, you know, it has a negative connotation. I wonder why. But so, so what they, they don't call it socialism. They call it single payer. Right. Single payer, single, single payer sounds good. Socialism sounds bad. And the reason socialism sounds bad is because if you want to see what socialism looks like, you can go to Venezuela, which is, which is completely collapsing, or go to North Korea, which is the country where the, where the most miserable people in the world live because they have a complete communist-slash-socialist government there. Or go to the former Soviet Union, only it's not there anymore. That was socialism, and you couldn't buy toilet paper. So, socialism, communism, is incapable of providing an abundance of consumer products and services, uh, i.e. prosperity. Cannot produce prosperity. Okay, so you've got socialism or free markets, or... You can try a third way, and that's what we've done with Obamacare. Under Obamacare, you try to leave some, some vestiges of the free market in place. You still have doctors and, 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 and medical offices and hospitals that you know, provide services and can try to make a profit, and they're in the market. But the government intervenes massively to regulate those markets, and for example, they they have mandates. They mandate to insurance companies, to medical insurance companies, what type of insurance they're allowed to offer. 
Under Obamacare, insurance companies can't just offer you any plan they want to. So you don't get a free you don't get the freedom to choose what type of medical plan you want to buy. You only are able to buy the types of plan that the government allows the insurance companies to sell you. So that's one mandate. A second mandate is that they mandate that employers who have more than 50 employees provide insurance to their full-time employees. That's anybody who works over 30 hours, thereby creating an incentive for small businesses with 50 with fewer than 50 employees not to grow not to hire more employees, try to automate, try to grow without more employees, don't hire people. So that kills jobs. It also kills full-time jobs because a lot of uh, employers have responded by hiring a lot of people who work 29 and a half hours a week so they don't have to buy them health insurance. So that's the, that's the employer mandate. And possibly, arguably, the worst and most anti-freedom aspect of Obamacare is the individual mandate. And the individual mandate says, if you don't have insurance at work, you have to buy it. You don't want to buy it? Tough shit. You're buying it. If you don't, we're going to penalize you. We're going to fine you. So a lot of healthy young people who go into the insurance market and find out that it costs $8,000 a year to buy insurance, and it's got a $5,000 deductible, which means you're out of pocket for the $8,000 plus $5,000 or $13,000 a year before you get a nickel's worth of insurance coverage or medical help, and healthy young people say, wait a minute, I'm only spending $300 a year on doctor bills now. Why do I want to spend 8000 for insurance that I don't need? So they don't want to buy it. And the government says, too bad, you got to buy it. What happens if you don't? We're going to fine you. We're going to penalize you. Who enforces that penalty? The IRS. Now, I'll just tell you a little secret here. Well, first of all, Trump issued an executive order telling the IRS to stop enforcing that. Okay. So that's undermining Obamacare right there, that they're not able to force people to buy insurance if they don't want to. Second tip, even if, they, if it comes back, you don't really have to do it. Best kept, kept secret in the world, if, if, you don't, if you refuse to buy insurance, you refuse to apply with the, with the individual mandate of Obamacare, the IRS wants to enforce that by penalizing you, they can't take money from you. I verified this with my accountant. They can't take your money. What they can do is refuse to give you your refund. So if you set up your affairs in a way that you don't have a refund, you don't have make sure your employer is not withholding more taxes than you actually are going to owe, or if you're in business for yourself, don't pay more taxes than you owe, you won't be doing a refund. They can't take the money from you. They can't come after you and get the money. And you know what? I'm on Medicare, but my wife and kids aren't. And I don't buy them insurance. I don't buy them insurance. Insurance is a bad deal. They're in good health. It costs too damn much. I ain't buying it. And my, every year my accountant sends me the thing, oh, you got to pay this fine. No, I'm not paying it. I don't pay the penalty. I don't buy the insurance. And to tell you the truth, I've only paid for insurance maybe two or three years out of my entire life because most of the time I just figured, I'm not paying for insurance. I'll take the money, put it in the stock market. If, if I get sick, I'll have the money there. That's a much better deal than insurance, the way the markets are now. So, so that's, a, that's a little uh, practical tip there. But the, the, the thing from the public policy point of view, Obamacare can't work without the mandates. You're right. 
yes, they need the healthy people to put in the money. You're yeah, right. they need to take the, and the way it works is they take money from healthier, younger people and they give it to sicker, older people. Now, for liberals, for liberals who think that they love this idea, I would give you one thought that might give you a little bit of pause. Younger people are poorer than older people. People's peak earning years are after 50. So people who are in their 50s, a lot of them, their children are already grown up, so they don't have the expense of raising children. And their health is worse, true, but they're also a lot richer. They're making more money. In other words, you got a young guy who's making $25,000 a year, and he's trying to support two kids, and you're taxing him with a mandate in order to give the money to a guy who's making 80000 a year and doesn't have any kids to raise anymore. So Obamacare, liberals wake up, hello, Obamacare redistributes wealth from the poor to the rich. You never thought about that, did you? Did anybody ever tell you that? Did the politicians who pushed tell you that? Did Obama tell you that? Did Hillary tell you that? Did the liberal media tell you that? No, but that's the reality. The mandate redistributes wealth from from healthy young people to sicker older people, but it's also taking it from poorer people and giving it to richer people. Like much redistribution of wealth, it's perverse. Okay, but the, the, the Republicans now have a little bit of a problem, which is part of the reason that they can't get, a, get rid of Obamacare. They, they can't get rid of it because the moderate, quote-unquote moderate Republicans, and a moderate Republican basically is a liberal who's a Republican, they don't have liberal Republicans. They, they call liberal Republicans moderates because you can't have a liberal Republican that sounds like a, an oxymoron. Okay? So we call them, we call them moderates. They, they want to vote with the Democrats. Now, there aren't that many, there aren't that many moderate Republicans. The majority of, of, yeah, you know, maybe five or six is enough. That's enough that they can't get a majority in the Senate to pass a repeal of Obamacare. Here's the problem, here's the problem again Republicans have. You see, there are a couple of things in Obamacare that are very popular, such as pre-existing conditions. That's another mandate. One of the mandates of Obamacare says to the insurance company, you have to cover people who are already sick when they contact you. Now, I talked about this before. You go to the insurance company and you got cancer and you need half a million dollars a year in insurance in medical coverage. And the, you go to the insurance company and say, yeah, I got cancer, but, you know, hey, uh, I'll pay my premium. Well, how much is your premium? Well, it's 8000 a year. Oh, that's okay. I'll pay the 8000 in order to get the, the 500000 in, in medical benefits. Not a great deal for the insurance company. So under Obamacare, the government says to the insurance company, too bad, pal. You got to cover this guy. Now, as we talked about before, you can't call an insurance company the day after your house burns down and ask them to cover the loss of your house. You have to buy the insurance beforehand. And if somebody doesn't buy insurance before they get the cancer, and then they get cancer, it should be their tough luck. You should have bought it before. You were irresponsible. You didn't buy the insurance. Now you're sick. Now it's too late. And you could maybe try to find a charity to help you or whatever. But don't, don't worry about it. The government mandates that they give you the insurance. The Republican problem is that they don't want to get rid of the pre-existing mandate because it's popular. 
Well, here's a problem. If the individual mandate goes away, so the insurance companies aren't getting premiums for people who don't get, you know, look, it's a great deal for the insurance company to insure a healthy 25-year-old who's paying them $8,000 a year and only using $300 in medical, has $300 in medical bills. They get the $8,000, they pay out nothing. Bupkis, zero, right? That's a great deal for them. Bad deal for them at the opposite extreme is the pre-existing condition guy who's very sick and they get a small premium and they have to pay out hundreds of thousands of years in benefits. But it balances out. If they have millions of young people who the government forces to buy the individual mandate, that's where they get the money from to provide the benefits to the guy with a pre-existing condition. Now, the Republicans are in this contradiction because they'd love to get, they, they want to get rid of the individual mandate, but they can't get rid of the pre-existing condition mandate, which means that basically if they succeed in doing that, if they keep the pre-existing condition mandate and they get rid of the individual mandate, what happens to the insurance companies? They don't make as much money. They go broke. Not just money, they go completely broke. So the Republicans are in this contradiction. And that's why they are having so much trouble. Now, you know, they're also having trouble because Obamacare gives hundreds of billions of dollars more funding for Medicaid, which is, you know, they put 20 million new people in the Medicaid rolls, which is free health care from the government for supposedly poor people, although now it's reaching middle class people also. So that's a problem that, you know, that's popular with people who get those benefits. And so the Republican moderates don't want to get rid of that either. But they're in a complete contradiction. And that problem can't be solved. There's no solution. You're right. There is no solution to that. That, that there's no way they can fix this problem. Um, and the, the problem is, is that we talk about, like, hey, people with pre-existing conditions, you can't have the cancer and then go, hey, I need insurance now, right? And I think, I, I, I feel like it's, if, if it wasn't mandated, it would be one of those things that everybody would talk about, like, hey, you're 25, you've got two kids, you should have insurance as sort of like Dave Ramsey would talk about this. Like you need to make sure you've got insurance first, you know, in his Southern draw that yeah. everybody likes so much. So it's basically like it's mandating what we would already require as far as a responsible decision. I don't know. I, it's very difficult because I don't like being required to do things. But at the same time, like if it's something that I would have to do anyway, why not have it be mandated so that it can cover everybody? Is that, well, is that I, wrong thought? I mean, well, it, it depends on your point of view. Uh, I look at, at, at almost everything through the lens of freedom. I want freedom. I don't want these friggin' idiots who work in government bureaucracies telling me what to do and how to live my life. Thank you very much. I like to decide how to spend my own money. I don't need the government to tell me. I don't need the government to, to put me on for Social Security either. You know, all the money I paid in taxes for Social Security, I would have been happy to invest to prepare for my own retirement. I don't need the government doing it. Mm-hmm. Same with Medicare. Same with this. I want freedom. No, I, I, and, and not only do I want freedom, but I think that economically freedom works better. Freedom works better when the government starts putting these regulations in, massively intervening in the market. There are thousands of unintended consequences that, that these mental giants didn't think through. And we're seeing that now. 
That's well, why you, Obamacare you know is collapsing. Raises, you know it raises health care costs. Like, we know that it's going to raise the health care Well, it has raised the health care costs. It's going to increase the national debt because we've got to pay people. To it's already increased the national debt. You're 100% correct all of the course. way across that. Of course. Of course, the issue is also what do we do with the people that make that decision not to do, not to, to, to buy insurance, and they do end up getting having an issue. Like, how do we handle that? Because right now what we would do is continue to treat them and then – Well, the didn't, didn't, right aren't now, you the guy who made the argument uh, in a previous episode about financial mismanagement? Yeah. That you didn't want the government regulating people's financial mismanagement. Let them make their own choices about how to manage their finances. Oh, I didn't have a, an opinion one way or the other. My, my whole point was it's damaging. It can be damaging. This was in the, the discussion about the drugs. Yeah. So if if someone mismanages their finances, it's got repercussions against the people around it, them. It's That's got natural consequences that hopefully hopefully are educational. Or, or deadly, because in this case, it would be someone with cancer would not get treatment for cancer. Theoretically. And then you've got, then you've got if in this, again, completely hypothetical, hypothetical made-up person that we've talked about, what happens to these two kids – that he's taking care of well is now we're in a situation where those two kids are now they're a not covered well, insurance and b now we have a, a situation where they don't what do we well, do with them can, can we agree that there is no utopia so there's no there's no public policy that creates an a perfect society where everybody's happy and prosperous so what we have to do is compare imperfect policies that produce imperfect results. So you would say, you're saying, your argument is, well, if we don't have the government intervene in the healthcare system, there will be individuals who will get sick, who were irresponsible enough that they had never bought insurance for themselves, and they get seriously ill or injured, and they can't afford treatment, and therefore they die. I think that may be true. On the other hand, my argument would be that if you had a real free market in medical care like we do in other things, it would, would produce such a high level of abundance and prosperity. Health care costs would be much lower. I, I don't believe that. Well, I, I, can, I can make a pretty good persuasive case for it. I, I bet you can try, but what I will tell you is that human nature in these situations Costs never go down. Well, let's let's break it down. First of all, before the government started, I've, I've made this point before. Mm -hmm. Before the government started intervening in the me in the medical system, back in the 1950s, health care was three percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. Since the government has started intervening in the mid 60s, it's gone steadily up, and today it's 19 percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. So health care costs have skyrocketed skyrocketed at a multiple many times higher than the, the general rate of inflation. You know, if you get 3% inflation, you get 10% inflation in health care costs. Why? You could say, well, well, because some people make the argument that the reason medical costs have gone up so high is because of all the amazing new technologies we have. These advancements in technology are very expensive. I mean, MRIs and CAT scans and God knows, I mean, I'm you know, I was in the hospital a couple of months ago. 
unbelievable the level of high-tech equipment they have. Unbelievable. I said, well, look at all that. Of course it's very expensive, and of course it gets more expensive all the time. I say, yeah, does it? Does technology always get more expensive all no, the time? it gets cheaper. It gets cheaper. Right. So in other words, your cell phone, which you can hold in the palm of your hand, costs a few hundred dollars, is a million times more powerful than the computers in the 1950s, the Univax, that cost millions and millions of dollars, and your phone is thousands of times, millions of times more powerful than that machine, and at a tiny, tiny fraction of the cost. The cost of most high-tech stuff goes down. Yes. It gets better and better with time. The quality gets better. The cost goes down because it's a free market. What's the exception? Medical care. And milk. Well, milk is because they're sending all the Mexicans back to Mexico so they can't milk the cows. I know it's true of fruit and vegetables. But anyway, the, the, the point is that, that if the government stays out of the way and you have a free market, technology improves, quality of care improves, quality of the products improve, costs go down over time. But when the government intervenes, uh-uh, the opposite, the costs go up over time. I don't know if I agree with you on that. I don't know if the costs come down. I think the costs stay the exactly the same. Well, the, the well would, would, the, you, would you the, explain something to me? Yes. Uh, in the 1960s, yeah. there were a few people who had phones in their cars. Mm-hmm. You know what those people were called? Billionaires. Yeah. To have a phone in your car was mm-hmm. so expensive that only billionaires could afford it. Today, every 12-year-old's got a, got a cell phone that's a thousand times better than that billionaire had in the mm-hmm. 60s. Did the cost come down? The cost of phones come down? Yeah, but this is not a cell phone. This is... Well, the cost of the, the cost of the cell phone came down yes, as the I, quality I, I improved because of competition cost, and a free marketplace. Because the government doesn't interv- the prices will not. But the I prices did come down on healthcare. No, on phones. Different, different subjects. Exactly, healthcare is got re- regulated by the government. Cell phones aren't. That's why the price of the cell phones came down, and the price of healthcare went up because of the regulation. Because the regulation causes yes, prices to go up. I agree up. with you. I'm going to agree with you on that. What I'm going to disagree with you is that by taking it out of this situation, right? We well, we're not going market, to. Just follow my train of logic here. Take it out of the free market. I do not see the insurance companies going, let's lower prices. They won't do it. The hospitals will not lower oh, prices. Well, that's not They'll how it works. More money. First of all, look, let's agree that this isn't going to happen. No, I know it's not okay. going to happen. My ideas are never going to be adopted. Correct. Okay. I'm an extremist. I have a, uh, I'm a very small minority of people who still believe in freedom. So what we're talking about is a th- totally theoretical. Mm-hmm. If we had a free market in health and care, now what would, th- what would a free market look like? You could have insurance, right? Right now, the insurance companies are regulated state by state. So you don't have companies that sell insurance in all 50 states. Right. That's correct. Okay. So if you had a free market, that would go away. Right. That would mean every insurance company could go into every state and compete against other insurance companies. Okay? Now, I do believe in enforcing antitrust laws. There's so, your issue. Is That's why I don't well, think prices would come down as far as you okay. think they would. Well, if, if there's a monopoly, if you study classical economics, you understand that monopoly, monopoly pricing causes prices to go higher. Higher. So I'm not talking about monopoly. I'm talking about a free market. A free market, by definition, is a competitive market. 
okay? You know, if, if you make your choice about what supermarket you want to go to, you can go to Safeway or Thriftway or Fred Meyer or, you know, whatever. If you want to decide what restaurant to go to, you can go to Olive Garden or you can go to Red Lobster or you can go to McDonald's or, you know, you've got, a, you've got a 200 choices. So they're all competing for your business. That's a free market. That's a competitive market. So if you have a free market in healthcare, no Medicare, so the government's not distorting the prices by intervening, no Medicaid, no Obamacare, so you have a real free market, everybody making their own choice. Experience has shown that where you have free markets, over time, relatively speaking, prices go down and quality goes up. I mean, f f families are spending a much smaller percentage of their family budget on food today than they did 100 years ago. Agriculture is competitive. Food is, is a competitive industry. You get industries where government intervenes in the marketplace, it creates shortages, and prices go up. You get hyperinflation. As I quoted, I quoted Milton Friedman in a previous show, if the government managed the Sahara Desert in five years, there would be shortages of sand. By the way, there was just a report. You know, I listened to NPR. There was just a report on NPR two days ago. Shortages of sand. I'm listening to this where I said, oh, this has got to be a joke. Shortages, how do I, shortage of sand. First of all, I thought, who wants sand anyway? I mean, how many sandboxes are there, right? Turns out, hadn't really thought about it. They said sand is everywhere. Concrete is made with sand. Sure. All the highways, right. sand. Buildings, sand. Everywhere you see concrete, sand. M windows. Sand. Windows are made right. with sand. Glass is made out of sand. So sand is actually the largest, most sought-after commodity in the world. Well, there's also a, an abundant supply of it, right? So when they said this, I thought, well, if there's a shortage of sand, before the end of the story, they've got to be talking about government regulation, right? Sure enough, the government is shutting down sand mines. Did you know there were such things as sand mines? There are sand mines. They mine sand. Government's shutting them down for environmental reasons. Shortages of sand. Milton Friedman, he said it as a joke. And now, But it's creating worldwide shortages of sand. Are we going to invade another country just to take their sand? Are we going to have sand wars? There's going to be shortage of sandwiches. Yeah. It's going to be it's going to be terrible. Terrible. Okay. This is Jim Greening. Who is it? This is Jim Greenfield thinking deeply about the nature of reality so that you don't have to. And this is the Jim Greenfield Show. Jim wouldn't let me thank you for listening to the Jim Greenfield Show. He said the listeners should thank him for such a brilliant show, and he isn't thanking anyone. Jim also said I couldn't say, I hope you weren't offended. He says he doesn't give a shit if you were offended. And if you were, that's your problem. However, if you were offended, and I usually am, or disagree with Jim, which I tend to do every week, or have anything you'd like to say, you can email Jim, and Jim may read your email on the air, or invite you on the show to air your grievance, or, I don't know, whatever. You can email Jim at jimgreenfieldshowpodcast at gmail.com. This is Stuart Rice, a.k.a. Stuart White, or whatever Jim is going to call me this week, the overworked and underappreciated producer of The Jim Greenfield Show, starring Jim Greenfield. All recordings are copyright 2017, Jim Greenfield.